Hey, Real Talk listeners, welcome back. We are rocking through. And you know what, Michelle? We've been working on a new podcast segment process within our series. We're just going to give it a whirl. You know, I think what's interesting is how do we continue motivating through topics? And, you know, the pandemic has not given us a ton of things that were boring because things are constantly evolving for us on the day to day. I mean, let me just tell you like where we're at right now. Inflation is crazy, which that can be a whole topic in itself and how it impacts the business. But, you know, we're going through kind of uh, what they say, a downward area of trying to ease the inflation in the world. There's so much going on. And I think we just need to kind of like take a moment and talk about what's going on in HR. So, Michelle, let's talk to our listeners right now about like, really, what's going on? It's interesting that we tend to talk about similar topics over and over again. And we always, in every episode, we try to explain that the reason for that is because as a culture, as a society, we still haven't gotten them right. We're still working on mastering whatever those topics are. Not only are they not being mastered, but they're still changing pretty dramatically every single day. There's a new phrase coined every few minutes from the great resignation to the challenges with hiring people, but then moving into the challenges of keeping people, you know, keeping good employees that may have honestly been fairly happy at your company, not the unhappy employees. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people who showed up, did their job, were performing fairly consistently. In fact, this makes me laugh, Maria, and I know you and I have slightly different opinions on this, which you and I are both okay with that. So I hope our listeners are, but I follow a Twitter account where people post things about jobs that they have left, sort of like they would on Glassdoor. This is in Twitter with either images or significantly fewer characters. And so often they'll really get to the point and it's the comments that speak more to the topic. And there was one the other day that I could not stop laughing about because people are still stuck on this notion of loyalty to employers. And we're looking at a generation of people that are loyal to their lives and the people in their lives. And so this particular post on this Twitter account said, I turned in my notice and my boss, we did an exit interview. I explained to them, that the company I was going to was able to offer me a promotion. And my boss sarcastically says, dripping with anger, so basically you're about nothing but the money, huh? Good thing you're leaving. (laughs) And when I read that, I laughed, not because I don't think you should enjoy your job, because I don't think you should ever work anywhere that's misaligned with your values or is difficult to work at. However, we both know I'm a strong believer that you fucking work because you got to pay bills. Most of us would not work for other people if we did not require money to live our lives successfully, 
right? So is money the only reason people come to work? Absolutely not. Surveys show it over and over again. Is it the motivator to get people to apply? Yes, it is. So yes, they're about the money. And so in this particular case, what we had learned is through the pandemic, there had been furloughs. He had taken on more job responsibilities. He did not get a merit increase for two years because they stopped increasing merit because of struggles with the company, because of stuff going on with the pandemic. And yet somehow he was able to stay in the same kind of field of work, get a promotion, and another company was able to pay 20% more doing the same thing. So in his mind, you know he's got to be thinking, if you really valued me, you would make my work life better. You would consider the fact that I need money. We all have bills to pay. We're not asking employers to give us their entire bank account, but we are saying that we need to be appropriately compensated for the energy, the effort, the skill set, if it's a hard skill, or even the information and the knowledge and the creativity and innovation, if it is more of a thought job. We need to be compensated for that time and energy. And we need to be compensated appropriately. So if you are a leader out there, if you are, this is my rant for today, guys. Really sorry. It's my thing. Um, No, I'm not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. If you are a leader out there or a company owner and the words immediately pop into your mouth, it should be about loyalty and they should love us. Yeah, they should. They should enjoy coming to work. They should be loyal while they're there in the sense of making the right products or the right decisions or enhancing whatever industry you are in, in your particular business. But we come to work because we have bills. So pay us. I'm done, Maria. Totally your rant because everyone knows that if you find a job that you love, then you never will feel like you're working a day in your life. And yet I still have bills to pay. Like if it wasn't a mortgage, and it, do you know how much insurance costs? And go to Canada, it's even worse. It might be 5 to $7 a gallon here. In Canada, it's 9 and $10 a gallon right now. It takes $100 to fill up my gas tank to go to the office for a week. I sort of need compensation to put more gas in the car so I can come back to work next week. Uh, yeah, I mean, gas, insurance, like everything is like intense these days. I'm done now. I'm done with that topic. Fair, fair enough. I think, uh, yeah, well, you know, we obviously were talking a little bit about that, but we should get into our main topic, real hot. Let's talk about what's real hot, Michelle. We're actually going to start by talking about outsourcing elements of HR. And it would be my hope that it would be elements of HR. And as an organization, you have invested some in an HR department, but we're going to spend a couple segments talking about the pros and cons of outsourcing HR. Because in every situation, there are reasons that make something easy to do 
as well as reasons that make it hard. And you have to consider all of those in relationship to what's happening in your business to see if the pros outweigh the cons. So Maria, I'm thinking instead of going HR as a big bucket, that we actually divide it up into kind of the common departments that people are used to hearing about. And we're going to start with learning and development. You may hear that as learning and development. Your company may call it the training department. It has lots of names. But ultimately, learning and development is the group that focuses on ensuring employees are prepared to do their jobs correctly, as well as continued development beyond your current role into potentially other roles. They would also be responsible in most cases for specialized training. If you have, let's say, leadership training that's offered for anyone who is a people manager, they would likely be the group that facilitates that. They are also probably part of the group that facilitates orientation, which is that first kind of welcome to your company moment where they really get to understand who you are as an organization and what the values of the organization are. So Maria, does that feel like a good kind of look at L&D? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So if we talk historically, we can actually go back to, let's say, 2006 through 2009. And we could probably go back further than that, guys. But I didn't play a critical role in the workforce at that point. It was usually some kind of fast food job for me way before then. I'm focusing on a time in my career where I would have been a part of decision-making processes. And as you guys may remember, our country, the United States, went through a recession around that kind of 2000 time frame. And during that time frame, all organizations made some pretty drastic cuts, whether it was cuts to their staff. A lot of organizations actually took pay away from their employees that they will probably never have truly gotten back. The organization that I worked for, it varied depending on the position you held. But they decided that if every one of us gave a little bit of our money back, that they wouldn't have to lay off a significant number of people. And so at at an employee level, you lost 5% of your salary. And as you went up into leadership roles, 20, 25, 30% of your salary was given back to the organization in order to keep it. But the one thing, and the reason I bring that time period up, is the one thing that happened super quick in that moment was learning and development people were some of the first to be laid off. Now, in most situations, and when you think about this from a business perspective, it makes sense. Did it still cause me extreme anxiety and sadness when it was happening to me? Because I was, in fact, in learning and development. Of course it did. I thought that I would be laid off. I saw people that I had worked with and become very close friends with being laid off. And so obviously in that moment, 
I'd not have a lot of love. But if you step back for just a second, there are some people that you can't lay off. For example, if you are in a retail environment, you cannot lay off the people that come into the store and open the business. If you are in manufacturing, you cannot come in and lay off the person that runs the line or even the person that schedules the people that run the line. Because when you do those things, you reduce the amount of revenue the organization makes, which then becomes a nightmare of more layoffs. So it's always the support departments that take a hit first. And most companies, and I would hope very thoughtfully with a lot of compassion, probably sit in a room and they don't throw targets at them, I swear. Even though in 2008, I thought they probably were. But they go through like, where can we take a cut without having a detrimental impact to the business? Very often, traditional HR, like employee relations, will be some of the last in the HR department cut. But OD and L&D are going to be some of the first. So fast forward to 2020 and 2021 and 2022. And organizations are struggling once again. Even organizations that didn't think they would struggle. For example, organization I've worked with in the past produces vitamin supplements, which are bought all over the world right now because everybody wants to be healthy. You would think that they would not struggle, but everyone is struggling regardless of the industry. So once again, what we're seeing is learning and development taking the first cut. Most companies think it's a temporary solution, but I want you guys to think about it for just a second. And Marita, I want you to weigh on this as well. Even if it's just the three years that this pandemic has screwed the world, what's the potential impact of three years with little to no training from orientation to development? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty sad that that's the first department that always seems to be cut. And I think what's most critical is when you take a look at a lot of engagement surveys, which we've already had a topic of debate on this, but feedback from employees are that they're leaving organizations, and this could be exit surveys as well, for the lack of development. When you take a look at technology, for example, if you're behind on staying up to speed and being challenged in technology... Even one year, you're like five years behind in technology. You're not going to stay innovative with an innovative company. That's why Google focuses, for example, 20% or you know one day of their week focused solely and on dedicated development. I think what's also critical is that, you know, when you take a look and L&D is the first place to get cut, how many people are leaving bad leaders? Richard Branson says that. You need learning and development to continue leadership bench development for your organization unless you're constantly going to hire externally. And that creates poor morale, quite frankly, because people know that they don't have potential within their organization to continue growing. So, I mean, I can get on a rant on this all day, Michelle, but cutting your L&D organization and even making it into zero investment is worse than not doing anything at all, including outsourcing. Let's look at some of the pros and cons. And you guys, again, you've got to fit this within your business model, because even though we're going to give you some 
pros of outsourcing and we're going to give you some cons of outsourcing, it might not apply based on your situation. You might say those cons are irrelevant here because X, Y, and Z isn't happening. And so it may feel like a pro to bring it in, right? So once again, we'll give you our recommendation as we go towards the end and we'll make some suggestions for you. But we really want to just start by looking at what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of getting rid of your L&D department and outsourcing it to someone else. So I'm going to go with the big one, guys. Ooh, I'm going to go with a big con for outsourcing. It is a super short-term solution because those people are not ingrained in your business the same way an internal L&D department would be. It is a short-term solution in most cases. However, that also becomes my pro. So again, remember I said, it depends on your situation. We've worked with an organization before who, due to COVID-19, was forced to transition the headcount in L&D to an HR headcount because they needed more folks in employee relations, benefits, comp, et cetera. And so they reallocated the L&D headcount to hire more HR professionals. In the short-sightedness of that decision, what they found, any of the training that was required by OSHA or the FDA did not get completed, and it did not get completed in the manner that OSHA and the FDA requires from a tracking perspective. And they were running out of time. They had four months left at the end of the year to get a staff of 500 people through six mandatory trainings that historically their L&D team had done every two months staggered with it throughout the year. And so they were truly at a point where they needed someone with some expertise, someone that understood the topics, someone that could come in and facilitate quickly on implementing this training, someone that was willing to be creative and think outside of the box. In that case, their immediate strategy had to be to solve the thing that was on fire. I was a part of that consultation. We proposed what their long-term strategy should be, which was for us to work with a small L&D team in the coming years and eventually to exit their business as a consultant, having fully prepared their learning and development team, not just for compliance training, but also for that critical development training you were talking about. And so for them, short-term was a solution. And because we came to the table with that kind of 18-month staggered approach from an hours perspective, we were able to slowly exit while still ensuring that they were compliant, prepping their new team. And then eventually they were able to build an in-house L&D team. That was our strategy or our recommendation. So that's one of, in my mind, Maria, one of my pro-cons. What do you think about another one? You named them all. I think, you know, obviously pro-cons, when you take a look at outsourcing L&D, you know, obviously you think, 
about sometimes it's going to cost you more in some aspects. But at the end of the day, if you're a small, medium business, you can't afford a full-time L&D person sometimes, like the headcount, right? And I think that's what's critical. It was like, but you can get a lot of bang for your buck investing in maybe like a quarter of that salary to put together a program for you or launch something or clean something up for you. When you take a look at a lot of the initiatives and outsourcing your L&D, you get a lot of different expertise. You know, sometimes when you're honing in on one person, you either get instructional design or you get OD or you get somebody focused just on training. But when you outsource it, you kind of get like the best of all worlds from anybody because they have all different skill sets that they can apply to you and use in different formats. So I think there's so many different great challenges when you're outsourcing your L&D programs because you can get a lot of great knowledge and initiatives and programs developed for a lot less than you would have to to gain all of those people's experience and salary for your organization. I think that's a good one too, Marie, because I think a lot of times people do put the cost of a consultant in the con part of it. And they're like, well, I could hire a headcount for 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, depending on the actual skill set and the position and the title, right? However, there's something that I heard years ago, a coworker of mine say, and he said it, it was so direct and probably inappropriate in a corporate environment, but that makes it just my style. But he was so frankly honest about it. And I don't think people realize it. Can you, depending on the market you're in, hire an instructional designer for, I'm going to give you an average of 70. It can get a lot lower in states where I'm from. And it can get a lot more expensive from places that Maria is from just because of the cost of living and the salaries within that area. However, what most people don't realize is the time it takes to truly write content. This is Brandon. Brandon knows that I'm a huge fan of his. He's an incredible thought leader and incredible to talk to for hours on end, tons of innovation. But I remember one time that we were trying to hustle and get a couple of projects done really quickly. He got some feedback in our weekly meeting and they were like, can't you just get this done? And he paused and he said, I don't just poop and eloquent words come out. I know that was a little direct, Bram. Sorry. I see your face right now. (laughs) But his point, and it's something that writers anywhere would tell you if they had the audacity to say it. You're asking someone to come up with a eloquent, thought-provoking way to explain a topic or a skill to someone, those words don't just magically appear. Writing isn't easy. You don't just sit down in front of the computer and go, bam, I have some words. I laugh because I know this and my niece, who I talk about a lot, is writing a poetry book. I needed her to get to a certain number of poems before we could reach out to the publisher, Maria. So I gave her a deadline and I said, I need you to have six more poems by the end of next week. And she goes, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) And she had to remind me 
that it doesn't work that way. And so the reason I bring this up is for you to truly write a leadership development program that is applicable for the skill set of your current leaders, their current level of leadership, whether it's like a first-time leader, a multi-unit leader, or a senior leader or an executive, for them to understand the competencies at each of those levels, for them to understand and quickly assess how this leadership program fits into their orientation and their onboarding and how it truly gets them to that next competency level so that they could do their job well and to write it in a way where sometimes arrogant leaders are willing to pause and listen to them because they're basically being told how to behave or what skill they should use, it would easily take you a year to two years to develop a great program. And you can go to, like Maria said, with the different skill sets from a consulting organization, you can go to that organization And I'm willing to bet if they're anything like us, they've already thought through all those elements that I mentioned to begin with, like the competencies and the different levels and how long you've been in there and what your current skill set is, because they've already offered this sort of solution to other companies. So as a result of that, they already have a place to start. Now, the biggest gap they have that we have as consultants is to come in and understand some relevance around your business so that when we are practicing and giving examples, we can make it relevant to situations that your leaders will encounter. Now, I'm going to pause because Maria, you know that I firmly believe leadership is leadership. It doesn't matter what business you are in. Leadership is leadership. It's a bunch of communication, inspiring and motivating. It doesn't matter if you flip hamburgers, make widgets, or design the next high-tech sports car. Inspiring, motivating, and communicating is always going to be the same. However, training is more effective when it is communicated in a situation that they're familiar with. So often, what might feel like a huge chunk, if you are getting a bucket price or even an hourly rate from a consultant is really not because they are significantly further along than that headcount you would have hired. However, I will go back to the fact that I don't believe that consultants are long-term solutions unless you are just not big enough to have an ongoing headcount. Or you're so big and you're growing various programs and you need a consultant to help your existing team. Yes, that's a good one. Isn't it funny how every one of our pros is our con? (laughs) Yeah, it's got a different balance. But, you know, you just have to be very thoughtful about it. And I think I pride myself on honesty when I'm talking with organizations because if you don't need a consultant, I'm not going to sit there and waste your time telling you you need a consultant when you don't. Exactly. It's always nice, but there are companies that try to press consulting on every company. And I'm very much looking at the bottom line for companies and trying to be very thoughtful. Absolutely. And even Maria, to that point, one of our clients in 2020 
was that 2020 or 2021? I can't even remember anymore. 2021, we went to them after we delivered a solution and said, we need to get really specific on what you need because otherwise we don't believe we're the right investment for you. Not because we can't do it, but we think that you could probably do it more effectively and for less in-house unless you have some specific areas that you want us to work. And so we left that relationship with both parties prepared to keep a relationship with each other, but just doing it when the need was appropriate versus where we had gotten to, which was the need was no longer appropriate. It's true. I think one other thing that companies I find they struggle with, and I kind of alluded to this with leadership, but it also applies with consulting as well. People tend to stress the you don't know my business thing. And I'm going to share an example from really early in my professional career, an organization that I worked for, worked with Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and Big Brother, Big Sister Clubs. And we would bring kids in for a tour. We would let them have some fun at the company. They would get to go away with an experience, but also some tangible stuff as they went away. While they were there, we would take some of our tactical work and we would actually teach them how to do some of those things. I remember having an eight-year-old in the group and she goes, that's not so hard. Why has only grown-ups do that? That was really kind of that moment for me where I realized there are some things that are really hard to teach, like communicating a vision, empathy, when it's not a natural skill set for you. That's really hard. Communication, man, words are hard. I am telling you. But teaching someone the technicality of your job is not as complicated as you think it is. You're not asking them to run a blender for you. You're asking them to understand the process that work goes through, where some potential costs come into play, how you end up with revenue, what your customer interactions look like. That's what you're asking them to understand. No, they're never going to go ring up a customer at your register. They just need to understand that that's where the customer interaction happens. So even if you're struggling with the idea that this business is hard for people to understand, trust me, they don't need to know how to do the job. They just need to know how the mechanics of the business work in order to make appropriate recommendations. I completely agree. I think as long as they understand the foundation and they do need to spend some time with people getting to understand that, right? So like that's part of the consulting or the process when you outsource learning and development is they need to spend some time understanding the business. It depends on what it is. If you're setting up a system or something like that, maybe not so much, but like if you're literally designing a program for them, they need to spend time with like a couple of your leaders or a couple of your subject matter experts to get just a general foundation, like you said, the mechanics of the business. Absolutely. My recommendation, if you are in a place where you know you cannot afford... And guys, you cannot afford three years of untrained people. There is no way, no way... So that's part of my recommendation. There is no way 
to recover if they learn the wrong way. You could call someone whose expertise is in neurology, but after three years, they have started to lay patterns of behaviors in their mind, whether they are correct or not. And undoing that is significantly harder. It's why it's harder for people to quit smoking. Because once you start doing something, it is hard to take it away. So you cannot afford three years without elements of learning and development. So if you are in that situation, I would encourage you to do one thing, to bring someone in as a consultant. Even if all they do is help you write a strategy to get a full-time headcount back into your organization, they can look at your learning and development strategy from a big picture. They can identify where gaps are so that they can help you better understand what Maria mentioned earlier, which is you usually don't find one person that is a great facilitator, great at OD and strategy, and great at instructional design. And a lot of instructional designers, even though they are trying to branch into e-learning design, Sometimes you'll get instructional designers that are great at writing programs, but cannot make that leap to e-learning. So you may even be looking at someone different from there. Even folks that write e-learning like myself, I can do an e-learning for you. I'm not going to be the go-to in our business for setting up your LMS. Uh, Software implementation is not my expertise. Someone else in our organization has that expertise or two people in our organization. So even as you start to build that strategy, it may not even be one headcount. And so by having a consultant come in and look at the bigger picture for where those gaps are, they can identify quickly what is the headcount that you need to bring in. Is it a designer? Is it someone with technology or IT expertise? Is it a facilitator or is it a leader and you slowly build the rest of your team? So that would be my recommendation. Bring them in for the strategy. Once you hear their strategy recommendations, you can work with them to decide if they help implement elements of that strategy until you have a trained workforce. Great recommendations, which leads us into, so you think you're in charge. This is my... Our leadership segment. (laughs) You know why I like this as a segment title, Maria? You and I spent years before we left the same organization that we worked for training leaders. And virtually every time there was a leader new to position, I always remember them going, is there like a magic wand where I'm certainly suddenly smart about what it is I'm supposed to do? And there is no magic wand. You basically did your last job really well, probably took some really great actions to step into the role above you. At least I hope you were given that opportunity, whether it was covering in meetings or covering your boss's vacation. Maybe they let you lead team meetings or you became sort of an informal leader and influencer in your group to get more experience. Um, And then you were suddenly given that role. And we've talked about this a lot, Maria. Very rarely are people sent to training before they are promoted. 
Most organizations that have a leadership program will try to get you into training quickly after. When I say quickly after, I mean up to six months. So you've just had six months of effing up. It always came to my mind that no, there's no magic wand. I can't just miraculously make you a great leader. And so the title segment, So You Think You're a Leader, was just funny (laughs) to me. I love it. I love it. Well, our first topic in this is talking about really leadership, I guess, and how we really are focusing on it and how it really should inspire and empower and the skill sets needed, the relevant skills needed for this. So you talk a little bit about how companies are prematurely promoting this. Do you think even a prematurely promoted leader can have the capabilities of inspiring and empowering right off the bat? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are often things that people experience in their lives that we don't effectively relate to a leadership skill. There's an assessment. I hate to call it an assessment. So let's just call it a skill set analysis because there is no wrong answer. But Kuz's imposter wrote a book called The Leadership Challenge. And as part of a leadership development program that you and I were part of, leaders would take their questionnaire. And what the questionnaire would do is phrase a whole lot of questions. I think there were upwards of 60 in order to discover which of the five practices that they believed made a great leader you did naturally or you were more comfortable with based on your responses. So you would basically get scenarios and then a series of ways to respond. Like you had an employee who messed up a critical job and came to you at the last minute to tell you. And here are your responses, right? And those responses link to a skill within those practices. And that's sort of how they determined which ones you were most comfortable using. And what I found, it's an informal survey, is just my memory. But what I found over the years was that most people struggled with inspiring a shared vision and encouraging the heart. And for me, those are the softer of the two or the two more interpersonal of the five skills. And they are the ones that most people struggled with. In fact, When people scored high in those, I would usually use them as an example during the classes or the workshops or put them in charge of a group because I knew that everyone else would struggle with some of those skills. So to your point, yes, I think things happen where some people can do it naturally. It could be that you were in charge of a sports team in school. And so you've had that element of motivating people. It could be that you do a lot of volunteer work. It could be that it's just your natural tendency to include and encourage other people, maybe because that's what you want others to do for you. But what I have found is that is the smaller of the groups of people that got promoted within the business that I was talking about. Yeah. So (laughs) one of the first things that I really feel like organizations have got to do when it comes to the people in charge. I want to start by saying that from this moment forward, I'm just going to call them people leaders or people managers. Okay. So what I mean by that is they are 
able to directly impact the work experience, the stability of the job, promotional opportunities, raises, termination, etc. It is called positional power. The company is giving you authority over that particular person. In a lot of organizations, you'll see the title manager. No one reports to them. They are a manager of a program or a manager of a process. And that's where that title came from. What we're talking about specifically, and I don't care if you use the words manager or leader, we're talking about people leaders. And the first thing that you need to do as an organization is decide what your leadership or your people leader philosophy is. What do you expect leaders to bring to the table or at least develop with training? So that's really kind of the first thing. And for us, Maria, we break it down into multiple skills that a leader needs to have. Some of them are right brain skills that fall in the world of creativity, innovation, challenging the process, inspiring people, motivating, encouraging people. And some of them fall into the other side of your brain and they're more analytical where it's like strategy planning or problem solving where it's about identifying resources, aligning them so that your team can get their job done effectively. And then there is a kind of a subset that in my mind is a cross between those two. Often people refer to a sports coach when they start to talk about them because it's someone who understands the play inside and out. So you understand your strategy or your action plan inside and out. You know what the resources are, where it failed, everything. So you've got the analytical part, processing it, but then through that processing it, you're able to then interact with your employee and coach them in a way that they can get back in line with that analytical piece, which is delivering on the job. Most people do not evenly balance right brain skills and left brain skills. Most of us have a dominant side that we're comfortable with. And what that means is that you have to practice the other if you're going to improve it. And so when we talk about people leaders, we're talking about all of it. And so the reason I bring that up is throughout my career, I've had people say, in fact, I remember rephrasing the same feedback about five different ways so that a group of people could identify which of them was better for the person I was talking to and why. When I got to like the third rewrite of it, I used a a pretty direct, probably borderline harsh, but not mean, but it was borderline harsh compared to the other comments that I'd made. And I remember someone speaking up in the group and saying, now you're just acting like a manager. And then we completely changed the conversation because that's one of the things as people leaders that you need to understand. Management is a skill and it is good. What I did in that interaction wasn't managing, it was mean. There's a difference between managing and mean. Managing means that you're able to think through the job, you're able to identify root causes, you're able to problem solve, 
you're able to strategize, you're able to acquire necessary resources, you're able to communicate that plan effectively, and you're able to check in and make sure people are doing it correctly. None of that has anything to do with being mean to someone. That's just an asshole, I cuss, sorry. In our world, the ability to manage or use the analytical side of your brain is as important as the ability to inspire and motivate people, which is equally as important as your ability to move people's progress and skill set to the direction that you need it to be, to be effective within your group. And so in this segment, the reason we wanted to talk to you about all of that is in this segment called So You Think You're in Charge. We're going to drop just a really quick tip on you. It might be a tip that is traditionally referred to as a leadership tip, which leadership is usually used when people are talking about the softer skills of being in charge. A management tip, which people usually use that phrase when they're talking about the analytical parts, um, the doing parts of your job. And then we will sometimes use the phrase coaching or developing. I prefer the phrase developing because of the connotations behind coaching and how it's been misused in corporate America. So we will drop a skill that might fall into each of those categories because we at Real Talent believe that you must be able to inspire, develop, and lead your team into the future by having a well-thought-out strategy. So if we were to describe leaders, that's sort of a beginning element of what we would say our leadership philosophy is. Motivate, develop, and have a strategy to lead them into the future. Super critical, super important. Definitely a topic we've kind of talked about in the past, but really in a different capacity. So let's talk about some recommendations. Michelle, do we have any recommendations for our listeners after today's topic? We do. And Maria, you know this about me in general. If I could be paid to be a full-time student where I'm constantly learning stuff, I would be all in every day of the week. It doesn't work out that way. So my job is the next best job because we are thought leaders. And that means I do get to dedicate some time to learning new things. And recently, I have started looking into a particular element of psychology, um, Adler's concept behind psychology, which is completely different than Freud and Jung's kind of belief of psychology. And Adler actually believed that all human problems are a result of an interpersonal relationship problem. And what I have found through my own personal experience is more often than not, interpersonal relationship problems, whether it's someone I work with, someone I'm just encountering out at the mall, or someone in my family friend circle, it often boils down to communication and misinterpretation within whatever that communication happened, whether it was me misinterpreting body language or tone of voice or me misinterpreting words that were conveyed, vice versa. And so I know I've talked about this particular person a lot, but I really want 
to talk about her again. So there you go. I'm going to. I recently started reading the book Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. And it takes you on a journey that really helps you walk through upwards of 50 emotions and experiences that define human interaction. And while walking you through those experiences and those emotions that you experience as a direct result of interacting with other people, she helps you map out the necessary skills and communication required to make the best of those interactions. If you guys have ever followed Brene Brown, what you know is that she doesn't shy away from the hard emotions. In fact, she talks more about the tough to talk about emotions than she does all of the other emotions because she firmly believes that things like shame or anger or sorrow are a part of the human condition. And as a result of that, you need to understand how to interact within those emotions the same you would joy or love. And so if you're not into book reading, I have an even better recommendation for you. With all of the live streaming that is happening these days, go check out HBO Max and you will see a series called Atlas of the Heart. And that way you can take this a little bit at a time. She will actually bring in, she has the same audience through the entire series. And so you'll get to know those people and their interactions. And she will use their real life experiences to help you understand the skills that you need to communicate more effectively. I love it. Brene Brown. And I love a great audio or video because sometimes I just don't have time to sit down and read. Fantastic. Well, Michelle, I think this is it's super extremely helpful to our listeners. I love our new format of our new series. So continue on and listen through for our next topic. Until next time, everyone. Take care. Bye.